Mark My Words shares Mark Homer's contrarian views on investing, business, finance, economics, and all things money. Mark interviews the world's most successful business, finance, and money experts, as well as imparting his knowledge in a factual, direct, and no-nonsense manner. Welcome to Mark My Words, and here is your host, Mark Homer. Welcome to the 100th episode of the Property Nomads podcast. I'd just like to say a massive thank you to you for listening to the first 99 episodes and now this 100th one. Thank you for your continued support. We look forward to making the next 100 episodes even better. Really just a big thank you to yourselves. I promised that there would be a brilliant guest on today's episode and that, that's exactly what we're going to deliver. I'm delighted to be joined today by a successful author, a very successful podcaster, someone that's invested very successfully in property, both in single lets and doing a lot of commercial developments at the moment, Mark Homer. Thank you, Rob. Thanks for getting me onto this podcast or, or this joint podcast interview. Yeah, thanks. Uh, aware that this will go on to mark my words as well, but for people listening from the property nomad side, can you just give a little bit of background uh, about yourself, what got you into property and what some of the things you're doing today? Okay, so um, started in property in 03, um, started investing abroad, buying things I really shouldn't. Um, got sort of going properly buying good stuff, probably oh four, oh yeah, around that oh four, oh five. Started buying little terrace houses, buying them, refurbishing, remortgaging them. Did several hundred of those, you know, over five hundred um, for you know us investors, um, and then carried on into um conversions so started buying pubs offices um we did a sort of private members club uh and now i'm doing i've just finished a, a sort of squash courts and i'm now doing a sort of department store retail into about 100 flats um I am the main contractor. I'm doing construction management on it. So uh, I'm the builder, basically. And so I'm building it all myself. Um, and I've got another sort of retail project, which is just in planning. I'm hoping to get a few planning issues sorted on that at the moment. So um, quite, you know, reasonably varied experience um, over the years, um, mainly sort of into residential, but obviously we've got some commercial tenants as well. Um, yeah, portfolio in the sort of 25 million range, something at the moment. Um, but yeah, I must have done, I don't know, probably a hundred millions worth of deals, something like that over the years. And then we'd have, um, equity stakes in some of those, some of those we would have sold. Um, and we currently manage 850 tenants within this building. Um, so, uh, we have a letting agency. 10, 11, 12 staff in there, they all um, manage those. So we have external landlords as well. Um, lots of lots of single lets, but, you know, over, probably over the last 10 years, I've mainly tried to do um, sort of, it, it started with high-end HMOs with en-suites and then just moved into cluster flats. So a bit like student blocks, really high-end with en-suites, really, really kind of, sexy units really where you push the rent up push the yield up city center um that's been my model you know i've been doing quite a few of those and then we, we just hold them refinance them 
and, and manage them. Because I go back to when you first started in comparison to where you are today, was it always the end goal yeah. to be doing these sort of deals and developments now, or was it just one thing led to another, led to another, led to another, and here you are? Well, yeah, I, I mean, when I found the model, sort of early doors, I don't know, 04, something like that, the, the buy, refurb, mortgage, I, I really liked, I, lo- I loved the principle because of the extremely high return on capital invested. I was always looking for a way to invest my own money. And for me, it was all about how much money do I have to leave in and therefore what percentage return do I get on that? And the leverage I could get from this buy, refurb, mortgage model was, I'd never seen anything like it. I've, I've done loads of stock market stuff. I've done loads of other stuff, but I, I still don't think there's anything better in that sense. So um, over the years, obviously, I, I realized that just buying individual units, at one time we had, I think we had two, two um, members of staff just buying those units, two members of staff dealing with all the customers and all their queries all day. And then, I don't know, up to three or four teams refurbing all those individual properties and realised there must be a more efficient way of doing it. So um, I decided to do big blocks. But of course, you, you know, big blocks in commercial usually means, yeah, you, could, you can buy them. And if, if you find a good tenant for them, maybe you can refinance them and get a good chunk of your money back. But generally, um, residential is, I find it easier to add value uh, through development. Um, and instead of having to buy lots of little terraced houses, I could, I could buy much bigger, chunkier buildings, which save time um, so, or use my time more efficiently per unit. So that's how I then moved into the sort of development model. Um, you know, there are a few good-sized PRS operators um, and I looked at those and I thought, well, I can carry on with my model at, at a bigger scale, um, add value through development, and then keep it afterwards and vertically integrate. So, you know, sort of purchase, add value, um, you know, go through the development stage. Now I'm building out myself and then manage on the back end. So, you know, sort of be part, part of the whole process, really. So now you've got that. Uh, you know, work on that strategy at the moment is obviously that sounds like something you're going to continue to do. Is that something you, do you think you're going to evolve into doing anything else moving forward or that's, that's your sweet spot at the moment? Um, I'm always interested in other strategies. I'm always interested to learn, you know, what is good. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, th- there's a bit of me that I spoke to Rob about this a bit. There's a bit of me that, that sort of says once we've developed out what, we've got what I'm in the middle of at the moment. Um, I, I don't, I, I, I don't know if I want more residential after that, you know, um, I, you know, I think it's probably enough. Um, so we'll, we'll have to sort of see. Um, yeah, I, I quite like looking at this, the, the sort of a serviced office model. Um, I see a few other people running serviced offices where they're effectively renting desks, they're creating a community. I suppose it's a little bit like WeWork, but, you know, on a much smaller scale and it would be local um, and, you know, much, much better value. Um, I find that interesting. Um, I also find, you know, the big sheds interesting as well that are led to big covenants, you know, Amazon and all the trade counters and all that sort of stuff. 
Um, I'd probably like to bring more diversification into our portfolio. Yeah. I know, um, I'm sure that uh, you won't mind me saying this because Rob says, um, your business partner Rob says this quite a few times, is you like to see other people trial and error first on particular strategies and then go into it yourself. Yeah. Is, that what you're, is that what you're waiting for, really, is just to see how is it working for other people, do the numbers, get into your spreadsheets, and then if it looks okay and you're happy with it, then proceed? Yeah, I do like to find someone who's doing something really well and then model what they're doing. Um, and invariably, um, that won't be the newest stuff because to me, you know, the newest stuff is them trying something which is probably not, you know, that it may, they may even believe it's good, but if they've only been doing it a year or two, they don't really know whether it's any good or not. So I find those stories and those journeys very interesting and I'll only really accept them if I see them firsthand. Um, so I'll get to know people, I'll watch you know, I know a couple of people that are doing the serviced office um, model, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm just watching. Um, but um, it, this, is, this stuff is also, you know, it's opportunity led and different buildings suddenly become available. You know, we're going through a, a, a very much a, a changing landscape at the moment with COVID-19. So you're going to get more and more retail probably come to the market because it's empty there might be more office space because i don't know maybe companies start to uh use less office space uh i noticed one of the big landlords today said that only 10 percent of their tenants are actually using their offices at the moment uh which is significant now you would expect that because we're in lockdown but um i don't know how that turns into a longer sort of term trend so there's big flux and big change at the moment. So during those periods, yeah, there's going to be some losses and some issues, but there's going to be some opportunity as well. And I, you know, I, I quite enjoy focusing on that, that or, or finding that. I mean, I did what I think was the first permitted development application in Peterborough uh, for an office building. Um, you know, I converted that into 23 apartments a number of years ago. Um, there are going to be more permitted development rights coming. I don't know. There may be some on retail. There's probably going to be a bit of a window there, um, which is you know going to allow you to... to the, the challenge with a lot of the retailing in our town centre is the depth of the floor plate um, and getting light in. So there's a lot of square footage that you can't use. Unlike offices, they, they seem to be longer and thinner. So sort of... Um, you know, they they um, lend themselves quite well to apartments. Yeah. In terms of, because you mentioned it, they're the hot topic at the moment. You're in lockdown, COVID nineteen, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You've just briefly touched on the fact that there might be some PD rights possibly coming up for retail. In terms of the way the government's reacted, now I know the government's never going to please everyone with what they do, but in terms of how they've reacted with regards to trying to stimulate the economy again, how do you feel they have reacted? Do you think that's been They've reacted satisfactory. Satis- what? How have you said that word? Do you think they've reacted in a good way, or they could have done more, could have done better, or don't know at the moment? Um, I think it's very easy to come along and criticise in hindsight, and I think there's a lot of sort of keyboard warriors and and quite frankly silly journalists asking you know these these innate questions. You know the Corona Downing Street coronavirus um, daily briefing. Um, so, yeah, of course, in hindsight, that there must be loads of stuff. I think Boris has probably lost a little bit of his, um, his, 
his um, his braveness um, since he he caught the disease. Um, he seems a, a lot more timid now. If you believe the newspapers, um, m- most of the rest of the cabinet wants to get on, uh, push business on a bit more, maybe open up a bit earlier. Um, you know, and him and Matt Hancock are holding things back. So, yeah, I'd always be one for. You know, I mean, all this stuff about, oh, it's not very clear. Well, no, it's not very clear because they aren't clear because they haven't got all the evidence. And it doesn't matter what they say, they're going to be criticised. So they've sort of got to give a a broad framework and then sort of say to to business, well, you know, you do a risk assessment. If you think it's okay, then you reopen your business. Clearly you can't with retail or leisure, you know, or gyms, you know, that, that, that is illegal. But with other businesses, I think there's still the latitude to operate. Um, and I'd, I'd be one, you know, that would try and sort of, you know, I've been coming into the office every day. I'm running a construction site. We've carried on all the way through. We, you know, the government said we could continue. Um, I know now they're, they're having, you know, they're having to sort of say, um, well, I think one of the um, terms were, was that I read that come out of the cabinet was get the fuck on with it. Um, because I think they were fed up, the construction site shut. Um, and I think a lot of companies have, obviously they say it's all about keeping people safe, but I think there are other motives. You know, you, you've got McDonald's, you've got, um, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken, let's say Starbucks, all with drive-throughs, all that could have stayed open. It wouldn't surprise me if they just sort of said, well, what, what is the revenue that we'd get through a drive-through on our average week? Um, you know, can we make money at that? Um, and, you know, w- w- what scenario two, if we shut and we just take the furlough money, where are we? And it wouldn't surprise me if scenario two just, just went on that basis rather than keeping people safe. Do you see what I mean? So I, 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 it's difficult for government because they can't, you know, sort of legislate for every area of business. And a lot of people fall between the cracks. They've got to come out with an overarching sort of, you know, the, the furlough scheme. But I think those were the real decisions that were being made. I think um, with construction, the challenge came in the material. It was difficult to get materials. I don't think that's such a challenge now. But, you know, a lot of that was because the builders merchants were shutting. And it may have been because they were hard, finding it difficult to get materials in themselves. Excuse me. But I think in, in addition to that, it's because most of their big customers shut. So you've got Barrett, Persimmon, um, you know, um, uh, you know, you, you, you so all, all those sort of big guys, if they're shut and they're not taking tr- uh, materials from, let's say, Travis Perkins, um, then it's maybe uneconomic for Travis Perkins to open. Uh, and the reason the, the big builders shut, I assume, um, is because they're worried about their not being able to sell their finished houses on the back end because the market is closed. So what's the point? So again, you may as well shut and take the furlough money. So I think, you know, I, I think it might have been helpful if the government came out from the beginning and and just said you you are actively encouraged and should be going to work if you're on a construction site. That would help the employers. Um, you know, we got abuse for continuing. I've got all sorts of nonsense online from uninformed people. Um, you know, and in the end, I, I ended up posting a letter that the business secretary sent to us 
which basically said, you know, you're in construction, you should continue. Obviously, they didn't want to come out with that publicly because um, I presume they, they get attacked. Um, so, it, you know, there's, there's lots of layers going on, aren't there? Um, yeah. yeah, the challenge of mass media, isn't it, is that people will want to, you know, it's like when, uh, the, what was the article recently about X amount of millions or billions of property transactions have been put on hold. And you know, anyone can look at the number and go, oh, that's quite a lot. Then if you look at, you know, how much some of those properties might have been worth in London, it doesn't, you know, stack up as, stack up as well. And people, as you say, ill-informed and good old keyboard warriors. Everyone loves a good keyboard warrior. So it's, it's a nightmare. Yeah, there's lots of them about. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I mean, there, there's a lot of, there are a lot of articles, you know, every day. Oh, it's the worst recession for 300 years. And, you know, it, it, this is worse than the, the, the depression and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, it absolutely or, or probably is during the lockdown period. But I just don't see that as the relevant bit. The relevant bit is what, what, what do things look like afterwards? You know, how much scarring is there? How much unemployment is there? Not during the, the lockdown period, but afterwards. You know, what, what does GDP growth look like afterwards? Newspapers, they don't seem to be focusing on that. Even the FT, you know, it, it's all, you know, minus 30% GDP. Well, yeah, for, you know, a few months. But that's not the relevant bit, is it? No, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, and that's what they always did. They did it with Brexit. And I don't know why I expect them to do anything else. But I, I suppose I just want um, others to look at that and take it with a pinch of salt. The Bank of England have done a really good, um, they, they've done a scenario as to where where they think things look like afterwards, um, I can. Th th there's a video. Uh, I can get the name of it in a second. Um, but the, the the I think it's the monetary policy report of the Bank of England, and and it, it's actually really good. Um, a lot of people say it's too positive. Maybe it is. Everyone is guessing, uh, but I think it's a. If you love to travel like me and you understand the power in escaping the money for time exchange trap, but you just don't know how to do it, then building an Airbnb consultancy business could be exactly what you have been looking for. Right now in the UK, there is a completely untapped opportunity through helping struggling Airbnb hosts by turning around their underperforming properties and generating you huge commission payments in the process. We are going to teach you all of the tools and all of the techniques that we've learned over the last five years through building our very own multiple six-figure Airbnb business, arming you with everything that you need to swoop in and save the day. Minimal startup costs, zero risk, and almost unlimited potential. Sound good? Welcome to the Airbnb Consultant. Contact us through any of the channels included in the studio notes to get the conversation started. pretty good guess and those guys they get loads of receptors they've got guys driving around the country in cars doing surveys with companies we receive um you know posted surveys from them which we uh, respond to so i think you know they, they they've got the, the the they're pulling the levers of the banks they know what the banks are doing they know how well capitalized they are and they discuss it in there you know because that's what's really important how much are the banks going to lend to the property market afterwards and, and to businesses, well, they're in a pretty good position to do so, I think, at the moment. I'm not saying 
none of them are going to get into trouble. But I, I don't think we're in an 09 scenario with the banks at all at the moment, you know? Um, so I'll, I'll find the name of that as, as we carry yeah, no, on. Absolutely. I, I, totally agree. I totally agree with what you just said there because it's, it's really important. A lot of people will focus on, you know, the rubbish that, you know, the mass media sends out. And as you point out, if the FT is even saying the same thing, they're not focusing on, on the right thing. If you looked into, if you had to look into your crystal ball and make a little bit of a prediction yourself, so you're going to turn into Mystic Meg for a second if you want, but how do you think people are going to come out of this? Is it literally just a case of the banks providing funding to the property market and then that will give a lot more confidence for the rest of the UK in general? Or do you think there's some other forces at play that we need to wait and find out first before moving forward? Well, there's a whole load of stuff, isn't there? This is a massive melting pot as with last time, you know, loads of it is about confidence and how the public feels uh, about their job, about their financial situation, uh, about where they feel like the economy is going. Um, And, you know, that is in a large part guided and in the hands of the media. If the media keep on pounding them on a daily basis, you know, it, you know, it's a it's a scientifically proven fact that you know even even if something's complete nonsense, if you tell somebody something on a daily basis, you know, over a long period of time, the same thing, in in the end they'll 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 end up believing it. You know, bullshit baffles brains. So um, I think that's a that's that's a huge part of it. How how long the media carry on. Uh, with their negative messaging, obviously it sells their, their their papers. I think the banks, you know, that is huge. Uh, I think if the banks are going to lend at good loan to values, you know, at good sort of multiples, uh, obviously they will be lending at great interest rates to individuals and to companies. I think that's a huge part of the property market and clearly businesses as well. I think businesses, lots of them won't invest to increase productivity, you know, invest in capital, uh, big sort of capital in- intensive projects, CapEx. Um, I think that's, you know, very much guided on where they see economic growth, stability, um, you know, and, and how their market has been affected by this period. Um, so, I, you know, and that that often only comes after a period of stability. That's human nature, isn't it? We we tend to look at what what has been and then sort of extrapolate that out into the future. Um, so that that will probably take a little while to come back. Um, and, and it depends what industry they're in. You know, if they were in travel and and leisure, then they're probably going to be investing less than those who are I don't know in in the food production industry you know, that we, which may have done quite well out of this, depending on whether they were selling to supermarkets or to food service, which is clearly done really badly because the, the restaurants are shut. As you say, it's all, it's all down to confidence. And when the people uh, sort out their ulterior motives behind the scenes, then I think everyone else will, they'll start filtering through uh, the good news. And I put that in, you know, quotes, the good news to everyone and we'll, we'll get cracking. Yeah. I did find that video uh, I just had a quick click around. It, it was it's the Bank of England Monetary Policy Report and Interim Financial Stability. So Monetary Policy Report and Interim Financial Stability Report. Um, and that is um, a YouTube video, 
and it's published in May 2020. You should really listen to that. There's a lot of value there. The other thing that I think is great is the if you're looking at sort of predictions of where this is headed in terms of house prices, GDP, commercial property values, Lloyds Bank have laid out four scenarios. Clearly, they don't know what's going to happen, but they've, they've got a base case, they've got a pessimistic scenario, upside, and they've got a severe scenario. Um, so just, just Google that as well. I've, I've put that in the Progressive Property Community Facebook group. Um, but um, yeah, I, I think that's a good guess because clearly everyone's guessing at the moment. Nobody absolutely knows because there are lots of variables that are still to show their face. Lots of things are still to happen that, that we're, not, um, we're not clear about yet. Time will tell. Um, and we'll also put a link to that video in the show notes as well so people can go and check that out. Very yeah. important. You mentioned about being a project manager at the moment and your the project that you're doing in Peterborough hasn't really been affected um, apart from a little, you know, few materials here and there. How have you found people that, you know, other developers that you've been speaking to, have they been more affected uh, or is it just down to site management? You're taking instructions from the government that say crack on and you're just cracking on. Other people are being a bit more cautious. How do you think the development market's reacted to everything? Um I think lots of people have shut because the builders that they're using have wanted to shut um, and they and or they've had trouble getting materials. Um, you know, we we carried on, but we had plenty of challenges during that period. Um, one of the big material suppliers just refused to supply us. Um, uh, in the end, I, I, I was sparring with the sort of relationship manager and then I, I he, he sort of kept going on about, um, what was it, uh, key, I didn't call it key, were essential sites, you know. And, and of course, they don't really know what they're talking about a lot of the time because they've just seen it somewhere or whatever. So I said, all right, well, where is this definite? Oh, it's on our website. So, so I had a quick look and it, it was like, well, essential sites are, it was like, well, any work to supermarkets, any work where you're uh, preventing or remediating water ingress, um, or you know any any work where you're sort of making good roofs, things like that. And I thought, well, a we're working above a, a live supermarket with people in there because that, that's where the flats are. B the roofs off and there's been water going into the supermarket and they've complained about it. And C. Um, you know, we we yeah, we we were working on a roof. So so I just got the document. I I, I got a couple of emails from the supermarket. I, I got the photos of the roof off, whatever. Because he said um, you need to write a letter to to our director. So I did. I, I wrote a letter. I put it all together. It took me half an hour. And that afternoon, the director came back. Said, "Yeah, fine. You're on the essential works list." So you could. I think a lot of people, if you just read and and work out what it is exactly. You know, they're, they're, you, you are, it's like now you can open your office. There's, no, there's, there's nothing legally that stops you doing it. Um, there's, the government have today issued a document um, which allows you to create a COVID secure workplace, yeah? Uh, or, or it's the guidance to show you how to create one. So our HR manager has got it through there. She's walking around the office. She's going to do everything on that list and she's going to create a risk assessment so that we can then start bringing the staff back. Um, you know, I, I just think it's, it's about finding the ways around all these issues. Um, 
yeah, probably to answer your question a little bit more specifically, um, I, I'm trying to think of other mates. Uh, yeah, a lot of them actually, you know, because they're, they're out on a building site, small site, that, you know, the guys are self-employed, which is key, um, so they want to continue. I mean, it, you know, it, it's more our staff who are employed who are scared to come to work. Um, there's a close correlation there, by the way, if they're self-employed or, or, or employed. Um, I'll, I'll leave you to sort of draw that inference. Um, but, you know, a lot of those guys with sort of open sites, they just continued, my mates, they, you know, they'd be building three, four, five houses, and they just carried on because, you know, they're not going to get any money from the government. Um, you know, most self-employed people are excluded, including myself. There's a lot of caveats. Uh, and a lot of the trades, you know, I, I spoke to one of my best tradesmen a couple of weeks ago, and he said, the, yeah, I worked out, the government are going to give me £200 a week if I stop uh, based on, you know, the profits I made last year and everything like that. So it's just not worth it. Um, so, yeah, a lot of those stopped. But I think the, the big ones, a lot of the big ones, sorry, a lot of the big ones stopped and a lot, a lot of the small ones, two of my pals, just continued. I think it was very much dependent on whether they were using a main contractor or not and the size of the main contractor. What happened initially was a lot of the main contractors said, uh, right, we're stopping, and um, I uh, my understanding was they um, the the um, the the main contractors a lot of them tried to use it as a relevant event uh, or or you know say it was a relevant event uh, in the JCT contract uh, which is the, the the building contract or you know other contracts there may be a force majeure uh, clause. Uh, and they they tried to use that clause to sort of say, oh, we can stop and we can claim extra time and you can't penalise us for that as the client. But I think quite quickly, lots of clients, uh, developers, you know, got their solicitors onto it and sort of uh, they could just see all the legal claims were going to start. Uh, so lots of them then reopened. Funny how that works. Uh, yeah. It's interesting. Do you think... Uh, Slightly off topic, but still related to in, in some way. Do you think with all the money that's being pumped into the economy, do you think the Bank of England are thinking they've got to keep some form of inflation? Do you reckon there's a, a growing concern macroeconomically that there's a risk of deflation happening? And of course, that I think there absolutely is. I mean, if you this is a little bit like 09, because you hear this all the time. There's one particular individual I can think of always sort of spouting stuff like this. And, you know, they oh, well, you print all this money, you, you, you go into QE and you'll create hyperinflation, you know, and before you know it, interest rates will need to be 15% to control it. That, that, that's the sort of story you hear now. It, it didn't happen last time. Uh, obviously, they were moving into unknown territory in 09 when they started printing all this money or really buying bonds. I think that the bank started buying bonds uh, that... that um, uh, that it was issuing, so the money was going round in a, a circle. It was create, increasing the the money supply. Um, so, in order, you know, I think in ordinary times, uh, when you're not going through a shock like this and severe decaying uh, GDP, um, I think you you know you you may get into an inflationary scenario. But what you're doing at the moment is you're counterbalancing. Ma- major deflationary pressure 
which has been created by this economic shock, you know, businesses uh, shutting down or, or, you know, working at very, very low capacity. Uh, the, the money supply contracting in, in such a severe way, um, you know, and, and, and the size of the economy potentially contracting around a third in, in, in one quarter, which is huge. So, you know, I don't, I don't think inflation is the risk, it's deflation. Now, you know, if you start with this quantitative easing and, and, and printing money, I think they've probably done 200 billion, maybe moving to 300 billion. Um, you know, that, that should, to some extent, counteract the deflationary pressure and then get you back into the zone. And if, if you look at that video that the Bank of England have created uh, that I just mentioned, um, it does actually over the horizon, and I, I can't remember what time horizon it was, it was probably two years, it brings you back to 2% CPI, you know, 2% inflation, uh, according to the Consumer Prices Index. So um, I think that, um, yeah, th- th- that's what their models suggest, you know, and, and you know, it gets you, gets you back to 2%, whether that will happen or not. Clearly, you know, they haven't done this before, and I think they're guessing, and, and they'll have to move it, they'll have to move the amount of QE, they'll have to move interest rates, all that sort of stuff. So that's the sort of near term. If you move out to the sort of medium, long term, maybe that's, I don't know, definitely a year plus, but probably, you know, two, three years plus beyond now. Um, That is where some commentators would say the risk of, higher inflation above the 2% target is more likely as, as an effect or as, a, as a, a sort of secondary effect of all of this QE or this money printing. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe they've got a point. I don't know. It didn't happen in 09, um, 2010. I suppose it doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to happen now, but I, I suppose it's, it's just about where, whether the bank spots it early enough and then they're able to, um, reduce the QE or maybe they need to nip it in the bud and, and put interest rates up above, you know, the, 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 the 0.75, or, you know, what it has been. Uh, I don't know what the new, I, I think the new normal was going to be 2%. Uh, that's probably where we were getting back to before all this. Yeah. I'll, start, I'll leave that down to Andrew Bailey to decide. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, yeah, he's on that video. It'll be up to him. Won't, well, I suppose it'd be up to the Monetary Policy Committee when it'd be all of them. Yeah, yeah. that's, um, yeah. again, you know, time will tell. I think, you know, interestingly, having, uh, I like studying previous cycles and, you know, things like that. And I think yeah. everything that people, it is, it's bizarre, but everything that people have say that says that happens before. So, you know, people start reacting fearfully, like, yeah, everyone's selling shares and this, that, this, that, this, that. Yeah. It's only when you're actually a part of it and you start seeing it, uh, you know, when people were, by uh, selling everything, um, you know, shares and so forth. I'm thinking, well, I've, I've been studying this because this happened in, you know, 29 and so forth. And yeah. it's like, wow, this, this, this actually this is actually happening. So do you think there's any lessons yeah. that people can take at, at the moment? Do you think there's any, any top tips, any lessons, any, any particular books that you think people should read in order to understand how these market cycles work? God, there's a load of books, aren't there? Um, on this topic, I, 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 I know it's probably a bit cliched, um, but I do like watching Warren Buffett. Um, 
I do think he's authentic. He's a journeyman. He's done it for decades and decades and decades. He knows exactly what he's talking about. Um, and I just don't think he has the same agenda for bullshit um, or trying to sell whatever it is that, you know, he obviously he's got his fund. And of course he is, he, you know, he, he has his kind of coat there and all the, the companies he invests in. But I just think you get a lot of honesty out of him and he's someone that is, he really gets it. Um, so I think it was two weeks ago he did his annual, uh, he does like an annual conference, the, the Berkshire Hathaway um, annual, I think it's conference. Um, if you just type that into YouTube, they just did it on his own because his partner, Charlie Munger, is very old now. He's in his 90s, so they didn't you know, want him around with all this. COVID stuff going on and I don't think there was an audience there either there's normally an audience there I listen to that every and it's usually on a, a Sunday morning and I it's always a few hours long and yeah he talks about how his fund's doing and he talks about the mistakes he's always straight out with all his mistakes you know investing in airlines and I've sold them and all this sort of stuff but what you get in that is at least half of it is just his musings on the economy and what's happening and you know, all the, the truths of investment and, you know, people ask a load of questions. They just ask a whole sack of questions about, oh, people are selling shares at the moment, we're really scared, what do you think about this? And, you know, it, um, I, I just, I, I think it's, for me, it's one of the best places to go for information like that. Yeah, we'll get a link to that um, in the show notes as well, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, this is a long-term game. If you're going to invest in equities or property, um, you can't be investing in equities for less than sort of three to five years um, and expect, you know, not potentially to go through a period like this. I don't know, where was the market? 7,700 on the FTSE and probably came down at the low to about 4,900 and something. So, you know, what, what's that roughly? Let's say it's dropped a third. Um, felt like it dropped a lot more in 09. I remember it went to three and a half thousand. Um, from about six and a half thousand. I know that's not a direct comparison and there's a lot of other stuff at, at play, but I I did think there was more to come. I didn't jump in uh, this time. Uh, and I've just got this feeling that the market, it always just feels too high to me. I'm, I'm probably um, a little bit, um, I don't know, you know, pessimistic generally in, in my opinions of things like that. But um yeah, I, it, uh, it it does feel like it's it's pretty pumped and there's a big dislocation between sort of Main Street and Wall Street, if you know what I mean. The the, the, the realities on the ground and, and, and where the stock market is is at the moment. Um, but, um, yeah, I, you know, if you're investing in that, you know, and you're going to take income from, from equities, um, you're investing over a long time horizon. If you look between the two, um, the two sort of the, the I don't know over the last ten years, pretty much the last recession and, and this one, um, you know the S and P five hundred's gone up about 140 percent. Um, so, you know, I, I I I just don't. You know, it's a good investment, isn't it, over the long term? Uh, and I think it should be viewed as such. And yes, there was panic. I saw it. I was, I, you know, I was watching it every minute. Um, thankfully, I wasn't heavily invested in equities because I've, 
I've been, you know, a good chunk of our cash is in, in property sites that we're developing at the moment. Maybe they're not the best place either because obviously they've been sure they're falling in value. Um, but I, um, you know, I, I, it was really extreme. Um, there was such a dash for cash uh, over those few days. I, it, I, you know, it was the 16th of March. I'll never forget it. We came in here and, you know, our some of our business just fell off a cliff. I, I, I've not seen it like that before. And the stock market went absolutely berserk that week because, you know, the shit had hit the fan. People realised what was happening. And there was such a dash for cash that even gold went down. Uh, bonds, US treasuries went down. Like, you know, the yields on those went up. It, it was bizarre. Uh, and I, I found that really weird because I, you know, I bought into some gold funds actually uh, a couple of years ago because I felt the market was, you know, very frothy. Um, and um, yeah, it was just really weird, but it looks like it's sort of going back to form now. Gold's now now rising, but well, it has. It's risen a lot, um, and and clearly bond yields have come down, and, and you know the value of bonds are strengthened as well. Um, so you know it, it it it'll turn into a classic recession scenario, and the, the companies that once were out of the lockdown, the companies that do well in recessions uh, are going to do better. And the companies that, that don't will do worse. Um, yeah. Why it's important to it's come out of the initial shock. Yeah. Yeah. This is stuff that's, you know, anyone that can study, you know, pick up a few books and study what's happened before, you can pretty much expect the same again. I can't remember who quoted it, but it's um, somewhere along the lines of if, if history is going to repeat itself, then I think we can expect the same again, which is pretty yeah. fundamental. Um, but yeah, no, it's interesting. That's interesting on gold. The fact that you mentioned that that had gone down because normally that offsets how other markets and investments are doing, isn't it? Gold goes up when everything else goes tits up, but vice yeah, versa. It's it does very strange. Which it is doing mm-hmm. now. It is doing that now. Um, but I just think there was such an immediate need for cash during that week um, that that people were just selling everything to get to get. I think they were, you know, trying to meet option calls. Sorry, margin calls and. Um, just you know, hoarding cash uh, because it becomes king during you know a recessionary period. Um, but then the Fed stopped it, uh, stepped in, uh, and they just injected masses and you know trillions of, of dollars of QE. Um, and, and our government, you know, did the same in the billions. Um, and clearly, that's pumped the markets up and um, normalised things. Who knows whether it will turn out to be a good thing? We've got to pay that money back at some point. Uh, but you could, I suppose you can just reverse the QE, can't you? Um, that's not an issue. Uh, I suppose more the issue is when the government borrows from the bank, um, you know, or, you know, or, or bonds are issued, um, then, you know, for government spending, then, that needs to be paid back at some point. We'll probably have some... We were talking about monetary financing as well. Uh, obviously, it didn't end well with um, Zimbabwe and, um, and Adolf Hitler tried it in the Second World War. That really did create massive inflation in, in both those scenarios where, where um, they just print money um, and, and give it to the government. The bank prints money and then gives it straight to the government to finance government spending. Um, now, the inevitable consequence is the money supply increases. Therefore, you get huge inflation 
in normal times and um, the, the value of your money goes down uh, at more than 2% a year um, or, or, you know, at a, an unsustainable rate. So, I don't, you know, they, they've talked about it, but it doesn't look like they're going to do it. Um, they, they may try it in some parts of the world. It'd be really interesting to watch what happens. I hold my hands. I wasn't expecting Hitler to be mentioned on, on, on the show, but that's great. That's why that's, that's interesting. Oh, well, it did it, didn't <laughs> yeah, they? Absolutely. Did you print it? I mean, were they Weimar? Weimar uh, Republic and people buying bread yeah. with wheelbarrows of Marx and everything back in the 30s. Absolutely. Yeah. And then he used it for, I don't know, I presume to make tanks and airplanes and all the rest of it. And maybe it looked good initially, but then your currency, it's worth nothing. Mugabe did it in Zimbabwe, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Time will tell. Well, a couple of questions, then we'll wrap up with a couple of um, listener questions, if that's okay with you. And you mentioned about Warren Buffett. I'd actually written it down on my notes. Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts about him selling his stock in American Airlines. And, and again, as you yeah. say, he's, he's not full of shit. It's Warren Buffett. He's fantastic. So oh, what do you think the knock-on effect that's going to have on, on airlines around the world? What, him selling his stake yeah. in, in them? Well, I, it, it, it's a real strong message to investors, isn't it? I think he's usually pretty guarded about these things and he tries not to be down on industries, but I think he just had to make that statement, uh, you know, because he's, he's got a duty to his, his um, partners in, in, in Berkshire Hathaway. So I, I just think it sends a really strong message. I think, it, you know, airline stocks dipped off the back of it. I think it will put maybe more novice investors off. Um, but, you know, it, it's obvious, isn't it? The thing's knackered, it, not just in the near term. Uh, I, I, I think it's knackered for... Got it. At least two or three years. You know, passenger numbers are not going to be anywhere near what they were for a few years. Um, Singapore's shut one of their terminals, and they're—I think—they're refurbishing it. And it's, you know, it's quite a long period that they've shut it for, which shows you what they think is going to happen to passenger numbers. Um, people are going to be put off flying for a while. Um, sounds like Michael O'Leary's getting going though in July with Ryanair. I quite like his uh, his balls in us. He just cracks on, doesn't he? He's pushing the government into a, a position, I think. He's, he's getting them to make decisions and sort of, um, you know, I think they were talking about maybe leaving the, the middle seat empty and, um, I don't know, maybe maybe he's pushed them not to do that. Uh, but in the absence of official government advice, I think he's there saying, put the, put the masks on, stop, stop people going to the toilets or stop them queuing for the toilets. We'll create our own rules until the government decide they're, they're going to sort of come in behind us. So, I, you know, it'll pick up again eventually. Uh, but I, I just, you know, I love travel and I'm well into Avios. You know, I, we, we go long haul with British Airways because they always fly direct. Um, every year, you know, in general, we get £600 a seat in business class or first class using Avios. I love it all. Um, you know, I, I, I grew up in the Far East and I love travel. And I love going to sort of random places, but that does not translate into investing in airlines. And I just, I don't think this is a complicated thing. Warren Buffett himself, a number of times over the years has said, if you look at airlines over several decades, they lose money. They do not make money. Um, you know, I, I think Branson said something about, uh, you know, it, it'll be one of the most costly things you ever do. You know, owning an airline 
you know, you want to turn yourself, take yourself from a billionaire to become a millionaire by an airline, all that sort of, a bit like a football club. I just don't think they're, they're generally over the long term profitable businesses. I know Ryanair is, uh, and I think EasyJet have done well. Uh, but I think the big long haul flag carriers just doesn't seem like a good business to me. Um, so, yeah, just why would you want to get involved? I think if you're wrapping, wrapping two things into one, I think there's some similarities to what you've just mentioned about, for example, airlines uh, and then property to an extent is do your homework, do your due diligence, learn about things that have gone in the past, read what other people are saying, and then you know take that mantra, formulate your own answers, and then make your own decisions. Do you think that's a fair assumption that people need to follow? Yeah, I think so. Um, although I think buying individual stocks, fine, if you're going to go and buy a lot of them, a lot of different industries and a lot of different companies, but you're probably better just investing in a tracker fund, uh, which tracks the indice, you know, and, and, and maybe go to Vanguard or Hargreaves Lansdowne, let them build you a portfolio of, of trackers. So some will go in the FTSE 100, some might go into the 250, some will go into the Dow Jones Index in America, some will probably go into Japan and, and China. And, you know, you're going to get exposure to all that stuff and you're going to get the dividends, the income along the way. Um, I, th- I think most people won't outperform that. And, and actually Warren Buffett hasn't over the last 10 years. He's, he's done a little bit worse than the S&P 500. Um, with, you know, you would say he's got to be up there with the best in the world. Oh, hands down. Absolutely hands down. His track record is, as with anything, you know, got some good things, got some things that haven't gone as well. But as you say, there's no, he's no, there's no BS with him. He's very straight to the point. This has worked well. This hasn't worked well. And that's it. And then all we could do is sit and learn and go, oh, okay, well, and study and, and go from there. Right. A couple of uh, questions from the audience, uh, if that is okay. Uh, Dan Gladstone asks, which property strategies do you see increasing in the next three years and which do you see decreasing? Uh, I think <clears throat> I think there's going to be more commercial coming up. Um, I think, you know, there is a slow motion crash or, or a decline in retail that's been going on for many years due to the internet uh, and less people shopping. I think that has been exacerbated and speeded up by this current shock. Uh, if I look around on High Street, there are quite a few shops that have shut uh, along a particular stretch that I look at quite a lot uh, just in the last, even before this. But, you know, this is going to create so many more vacancies where shops and, and, and you know, now restaurants, and that was, you know, certainly the casual eating market and the private equity style I don't know, Pizza Express, Prezzo, maybe Less Wagon Mama, all, all those, they, they were under pressure anyway. So, you know, I think there's going to be more of those buildings coming up. Um, so the conversion of those buildings, there's going to be another wave. You know, we add offices, maybe we get some more offices, but there's going to be even more retail, I think, available to convert. Um, what are the property strategies? I think Airbnb, you know, service accommodation, that'll come back. Um, clearly, there's an issue there with COVID at the moment. But um, I think, you know, come out of the back of this and, and you know, the, there's opportunities or that, that, that will sort of restart. I think there's going to be hotel owners in trouble, uh, not being able to service their debt. 
um, the lenders that have been less sympathetic um, will be taking some of those to the wall. Um, and there's going to be opportunities there potentially to buy hotels. Maybe you run them as hotels because from the end of the year, you know, you would have thought that hotels will be at least getting their bookings somewhere near back to normal. Um, they're going to have to be having to do some distancing and, and other stuff. Um, but, you know, I, I, if not, conversion. Convert those. Um, what, other, what other sort of, you know, single lets? I suppose it continues. I'm not really sure how this, you know, we, we have a letting agency. Yes, there's still reasonable demand there. Obviously, not so many people are moving at the moment, which is a challenge. Um, but, yeah, I, 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 see, I can't really see that. Does this change that either way? People have got to live somewhere, haven't they? Obviously, there's more rent arrears, probably, and more, more benefit. Um, I think we're down maybe up to 5%, something like that, on our, on our rents for the last month. But then there's universal credit claims going through for some of those people that have been made unemployed. So um, that comes back, I think. Mean, yeah, but it's just how, how deep the unemployment goes and how many people get laid off and, and how long it takes to recover. Wings and roundabouts. From Nick Swales, Nick asks, why did you partner with Rob Moore and not go at it alone in order to get 100% of the businesses? Uh, Rob and I are really, really different. Um, Rob is an awesome marketeer, you know, sales, he's, he's, he, he builds teams, he motivates teams, um, you know, and, and, and in many ways he sits on top and, and, and sort of organises the strategy for our training business. So, you know, we are really different and I would not have these businesses now if it weren't for Rob. Um, you know, and I, I hope he, he'd feel the same way uh, about my contribution. So, you know, if you've got a skill set, often, you know, it will be in one direction. And often if you bring somebody else along with a completely different skill set and it's complementary, you, you may have a business. Um, there are very few people that can do all elements and all, you know, are very good at, at, at um, you know, also it's, it's multidisciplined running a business. Yeah. Uh, last one from myself that yeah for myself would be as an author I've got a couple of books that are you know due here and there and everywhere but as an author yourself how difficult did you find it to write on common sense and low cost high life and the other contributions you've made to the books that you and Rob have um I I, I don't find writing books easy at all um with um low cost high life we went on holiday and Rob practically glued me to a chair in a coffee shop in the Caribbean every, you know, every day. And every time I tried to get up and look around and all the rest of it, he just kept telling me to sit down. Um, and then we got on with that. Um, so that was sort of thanks to him in some part. And then the second book, Uncommon Sense, that I did on my own, he um, we, it run, runs a sort of book writing camp. And uh, we went on a book writing camp on a set in Starbucks and he, I don't know, maybe five or six of us there. And he didn't quite stand in the entranceway at Starbucks to stop people leaving, but every time you looked up or he saw you weren't typing, it just raises eyebrow and all this sort of thing. So um, that's the honest answer. 
because uh, I just find it hard to just sit there and, and, and do that for such a long period. Um, with the other books, um, Rob True. grabbed a lot, of this, a lot of stuff out of my head and he sat there typing away. He, he can do that. I, I find it really hard. No further questions. That's, that's great. Now, thank you very much for your time, Mark. Really appreciate that. Uh, thank you for being part of this you know, 100th episode of the Property Nomads podcast and, and for sharing your insight on a variety of things that are going on in the market at the moment. And yeah, just again, a massive thank you and, and best of luck with all the ventures moving forward. Thank you, Rob. Good, good to talk to you. And uh, I wish you all the best. Thanks, Mark. Cheers, Rob.